Titus chapter 3 this morning, um, verses 1 through 7. Just a brief note of uh, context here before I read the passage. This is, of course, a letter of Paul to Titus. Titus, um, Paul had entrusted to kind of oversee the fledgling churches in Crete. And so these Gentile churches were were growing up, and, and Paul had tasked Titus with making sure that these churches had good leadership, um, that they had good overseers. And he gives Titus these various commands and exhortations and reminders that, that Titus ought to instill in the churches as he's helping to oversee the growth of these kind of really missionary churches. And so he's been giving various important things. This is what you need to look for in your leadership and elders. He gives qualifications for elders there. He talks about the doctrine that they ought to be teaching, the important um, gospel message that they ought to uh, primarily be centered around. And then we come to some practical applications here in chapter 3, and that's where we pick up. So I'll read for us Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And remember again that this is God's word to us that is useful and is uh, infallible and accomplishes God's purposes whenever we hear it. So turn your attention now to Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them, that is the churches that Titus was overseeing, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Well, I went to a minister's conference in seminary um, put on by the Banner of Truth. It's a Christian book publisher. They put on a conference for men who are entering into the ministry who are, or who are already in ministry every year up in Pennsylvania. And this was the first time I had gone, and I had a friend there who I went to college with, and then he went to a different seminary from me, but I was looking forward to meeting up with him. And um, one of the nights that we were there, he invited me to come out with him and a group of other men to go out uh, and have dinner together. And so uh, we show up at this restaurant. There were maybe 15 or 20 of us and uh, long story short, um, it, it was a bit of a rough service uh, f- from this restaurant. You know, it was the middle of the week, and so they were already kind of not expecting a big group to come in. And uh, it seems that they were short-staffed, and then someone had already ha- had called in sick or something like that, and so they were even more short-staffed. And so it took them a while to put together a table big enough for us, and then we were finally able to be seated. And then the, uh, the guy who ended up being our waiter, I believe was normally the host, and he looked like he was maybe 17 years old, you know, maybe his first job, and um, he had never waited a table before, but they needed someone. Everyone else 
had to be in the kitchen to make all the food for us. And so he was taking our orders, and it didn't go super smoothly. Um, there were some orders forgotten and mistaken. You know, with a big group, we were ordering appetizers and drinks and all those kinds of things at various times, and then trying to figure out the checks and everything. And so it was a bit of a mess. Um, but I, I remember being um, saddened and grieved and, and even angry at the way that some of the people in our group treated this young teenager who was uh, seemingly trying his best to, to meet our needs, um, but he kept messing things up. And, and just the rude looks that, that some of us were giving him, the critical um, comments that were being made behind his back when he would walk away and then even eventually would kind of spill over when he was talking to us. And, and just the overall impatience and uh, rude comments that were being made at him, I just remember being so saddened and grieved and disappointed by this because here we were, a group of seminary students and seminary professors and pastors who were privileged to be able to take some time away and go and hear and, and sit under great, wonderful preaching of God's word for several days at that point. And we were able to go and have this great meal together where we got to fellowship with uh, brothers in the ministry and to encourage one another. And we could have been this great light to this teenager who probably wasn't a believer, I don't know, but um, probably wasn't a Christian. And this was an opportunity for us to be a light to him and salt to him. And yet instead there was a lot of salt, saltiness, and there was a lot of bitterness from some of us. And, and I don't say that to be critical of these men because I, I know my own heart and I know how often I have been impatient and critical and, and so ready to condemn and criticize and to talk ill of people around me um, inside or outside of the church who don't meet my every little desire and who do something that causes me to feel impatient or like some need or some desire is not being met. And what we see in this passage this morning is that that not, ought not to be so, that we ought not to be characterized by rudeness and by impatience and by bitterness and by an eagerness to speak ill of others, but that we ought to, because we've been saturated in the gospel, that we ought to be characterized by patience and grace and kindness because of the grace that we've been shown. And so what I hope to pull out of this passage this morning is that we should be marked by a gentle love for the world because of the grace that we have received. We should be marked by a gentle love for the world because of the grace that we have received. Now I want to consider this passage under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the command of love, the command of love, then we'll see the context of love, and finally the condition of love, the command the context, and the condition. So first of all, the command of love. In verses 1 and 2, here is what Titus is to exhort these churches that are, are growing up. He is to exhort them to remember these things. Now, I think it's important uh, to notice that word right off the bat. <clears throat> he says, remind them. Remind them. And that means that they already knew this. And, and it's true of us as well that so often we need to be reminded of what we know to be true, that this was not new to them, that they were to be courteous to others. I think by nature, we, we recognize this, and by the word of God working in us and the spirit of God, we know that we ought to be characterized by these things, but we need to be reminded of them. And so he reminds them of this command, ultimately, to love the people around them. And uh, we're going to see kind of three major principles to this command, three aspects of this command 
of love uh, through these, this set of principles that we ought to be characterized by. The first of which is humble obedience, that the people of God should be characterized by humble obedience. We see, first of all, that Titus was to remind God's people, and by extension us, to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Now, we've already seen in Romans chapter 13, where we just were a couple of weeks ago when we talked about um, uh, civil authorities, the government, that we are uh, tasked as Christians with obeying our governments insofar as they do not call us to do something that is contrary to God's word or to sin. And so we know that we are to pay taxes. There's nothing unethical about paying taxes. We know that um, there's nothing unethical about walking across a crosswalk instead of uh, jaywalking, although I'm perfectly guilty of jaywalking. And, you know, I think sometimes it's a spirit of the law and all that. But, um, <clears throat> but if, there's, if there's no ethical prohibition from doing uh, what the government requires of us, then as tedious and frustrating as it is to follow some of the laws of the land, that we are to submit to them because God has placed them in authority over us. And this is a command to us. It's not an option that we are to be submissive and obedient to those authorities that God has placed in our lives. And so we see that applies to civil authorities, but it applies to other authorities and rulers as well that we are to be obedient. Uh, we, we actually um, just saw the, uh, in the Shorter Catechism talking about the fifth commandment, um, that we are to honor our father and our mother, that this is really a, an application of that command, that God has given us authorities in our lives that we are to obey and to submit to. And I think it's important to remember that submission and obedience um, is somewhat unconditional. Again, pr- with the exception of that condition that we shouldn't obey a command to sin, that even when we, if we only obey and we only submit to those, uh, to those um, orders, to those rules, to those regulations that we agree with, that we see all the rationale behind, that we're on board with, yes, I think that's a good policy, that's a good decision, I'm going to submit to that, that's not submission at all. It's not obedience. You're just doing that thing which you agree with. You're obeying yourself and the dictates of your own heart. But if you are truly submissive and obedient to those authorities that God has placed in your life, that's going to mean sometimes doing things that you don't want to do and doing things that you think are foolish or that you could have come up with a better solution to. That we are to submit ourselves to our authorities so that we are a blessing to them, so that we're not constantly butting heads with them and fighting them on every point and being stubborn and obstinate, but that we are a blessing to them even when they, commit, when they ask us to do something that we're not crazy about. We take vows to submit to the church leadership. If you are a member of a church, then you've taken a vow to submit to the leadership of the church. And that doesn't mean that the leadership of the church, certainly not here or anywhere else, is going to get it right every time, is going to perfectly align with everything that you agree with. And that doesn't mean that there's no proper channels of feedback and of, of um, complaint even. Those can go to Nick and not to me, you know, and um, uh, he would say the opposite. So, uh, you know, I guess, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> he's not here, so I can say these things. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, but there are proper times and places for making your views known to an authority, but generally speaking, our disposition ought to be, I want to submit as much as I'm able. I want to be obedient to those authorities that God has placed in my life as much as I'm able. If you're a teenager, please hear me. You are to submit and, uh, to and obey your parents 
even when you don't like their rules and even if you think they're out of touch and foolish, they're not. (laughs) And maybe even if they are, they're still the authorities that God has given to you. You are to obey them because you obey the Lord and you submit to his ways. And so the church ought to be characterized by humble obedience. That's part of loving the world, that we're not to seek our own way, but to seek to bless those around us. First of all, by obeying our authority. Secondly, by being characterized by eager righteousness. Eager righteousness. Notice what comes next. Not only are we to be submissive, that's a characteristic, um, not just an action, but a characteristic of us, submissive to rulers and authorities and, and to be obedient, but we're also to be ready for every good work and to speak evil of no one. Again, this excuse me, speaks of a disposition, a character trait that we ought to have, which is to be ready at, at all times, in every season, in season and out of season, to be ready to do good to those around us. I remember I, uh, right out of college, I lived in an apartment with three of my friends. Big mistake. Um, but uh, we lived on the second floor, if I remember correctly, and so we had someone living above us. And um, pretty quickly we learned that the people who lived above us were quite loud. And at, at various times throughout the day and even sometimes at night, I mean, it sounded like people were like dropping bowling balls on the, on the floor and then rolling them around and maybe taking their pogo stick and jumping off the bed onto the floor and, you know, smashing through the ceiling, it seemed like it would happen sometimes. And so we would get irritated immediately, you know, when that loud noise kind of shakes your apartment, you get irritated and frustrated, especially when you're trying to focus on something important like watching TV or whatever. And so we would get annoyed, and and at one point it got so bad that a couple of my friends went up to talk to the people above us and basically say, can you please quiet down, this is so annoying. And so they went up and found out that the, the noise was coming from uh, a child with special needs and that, they were try- they, that his parents knew that he was being loud and disruptive and they tried everything that they could to get him not to make so much noise and to, to stomp around and everything, but there was only so much that they could do and they were exhausted and wearied by trying to, to get him to, um, to stay quiet. And, and so we learned quickly how... Uh, cruel it was for us to be so um, impatient and bitter with them. And, and yet, to my shame, I was, not ready. I was not ready for a good work to them. I never once, even after I learned that, never once did I go up and introduce myself. I never met them. I never once offered to help them with something or even to get to know them and get to know their name and hear their story and, and find out what it was like to, uh, to live in the situation that they found themselves and I, I was not eager to do a good work to them. And yet that's what a disposition to be ready for good works would do. It would be an outward focus, not how can I make sure that my uh, little apartment is quiet and contained so that I can do what I want to do. But if I had been ready for every good work, it would have been how can I bless the people around me? How can I bless my neighbors? How can I be the type of person that is the light of the world as we are called that is the salt of the earth that brings blessing and goodness to the nations of which we are a part. That we are to be characterized by eager righteousness to do good to others, not to receive good for ourselves. And, and in that situation, I was quick to speak evil of this family, of the people above us that I didn't even know. I didn't know anything about them. And yet I was so quick to, to complain and to talk bad behind their backs 
and to say really awful things uh, to my shame. And we find ourselves doing this so often to people inside and outside of the church. We can't wait for that person that gets on our nerves at work or for that person, uh, that family member that no one else wants to be around. We can't wait for them to leave the room so that we can immediately vent to our spouse or to our sibling or to our friend. Can you believe what this person did? They are so annoying. They are so uh, foolish. They are so sinful. I can't believe that they would say something like that to me. I can't believe that they would do something like that. We're so quick to slander and to tear down rather than seeking ways to love others, and yet we ought to be eager for every good work not eager to condemn and to speak ill of others. So we should be characterized by humble obedience, by eager righteousness. And finally, we see that this command to love the world around us involves being characterized by gentle kindness. Gentle kindness. We see that we are to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, this wouldn't be a command if it were easy or if we were prone not to do these things. Um, But we are, at least I know myself and I know many of us, that we are prone to quarreling. Um, Perhaps it's one of our culture's greatest sins. Um, If you could uh, make a pill form of quarreling, I think social media would be that pill um, that, that we are so eager to jump into every little discourse, every little discussion uh, about every topic that we've maybe spent five minutes uh, considering, and we can't wait to get our opinion in there to show people that we're right and they're wrong and they need to hear our way and listen to our view on something and zip their lips so that they stop spouting off the nonsense that they're saying. We're so eager to get into to arguments about the smallest little things failing to recognize the far more important commands of Scripture. You know, maybe we get into quarrels about theological topics that are, that are nuanced and, and, and in tiny little detail that are like how many angels will dance on the head of a pin or could dance on the head of a pin. And we're neglecting this very glaring command over and over and over again in Scripture to avoid quarreling, to avoid causing unnecessary divisions amongst ourselves. We love quarreling as a culture, politically. We can't wait to, to float our ideas out there and to virtue signal about which side we're on or even condemn people who virtue signal while virtue signaling ourselves. Or at home, how often do we quarrel with siblings or spouses or, uh, or, or um, other family members, parents, that we can't wait to get our word in? It ought not to be so. We see how destructive that is within the church family and it's just as destructive to our witness to the world around us. We ought not to embroil ourselves in unnecessary fights and battles and quarrels that that we were never really a part of to begin with. But also, not only are we to avoid quarreling, instead we are to be gentle. Now that means that sometimes we are going to need to confront. We are going to need to say something, uh, you know, to, to give our view of something or to condemn someone for something that they've done. But we ought to do so with gentleness when there is a need to rebuke, when there is a need to confront, when there is a need to correct, we ought to be gentle in doing so. You know, if, you, if you're in a situation where you feel the need to say something to someone, you've noticed they've been doing something wrong or saying something wrong and it's, it's eating away at your conscience and you feel the need to say something, it's important that we ask ourselves, that you ask yourself, you know, why, why do I want to tell this person that? Why do I want to comment this on that post? Why do I want to say this to this person or to my friend about this person? 
is my goal to be, uh, to be gently corrective of them in order that they might behold the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and majesty and goodness all the more and that I might be a reflection of his character to the world? I know that's what goes through my head all the time. Um, or is it just a, a knee-jerk response to being frustrated and to think, they're wrong, I'm right, I need to insist on my own way. And often when that's the motivation, gentleness goes out the window because we want to we score the easy points, we want to win the victory that other people get to see, and we fail to be gentle in our correction and in our exhortations. And finally, we see that we are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Notice how, um, how, many, how many words are stacked on top of each other there to really emphasize and hammer home just how important this is. Show perfect, not just slight, not just good, not just great, perfect courtesy toward all people, not just the people that you like or get along with, not just the people that agree with you on things, but toward all people. That includes people who persecute us, who hate us, who live lifestyles that we don't approve of, who do those things that we find so abhorrent and wretched and who are ruining our culture and who are, who are taking what we have received and throwing it in the garbage. Those are the people, too, that we are also to show perfect courtesy toward, that we are to be just as patient and loving with them as we are with those who are dear to us. These are hard things. This is a hard command to love, and yet it is how we ought to be characterized by as the people of God. So that's the command of love. Well, what reason does he give? Why should we be so so patient and gentle and courteous toward all the people around us who live in wickedness and who even hate us, perhaps? Well, we see next the context of love. In verse 3 we read, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You know, if I think if you were to have asked me, you know, why should we be so kind to those around us? Why should we be courteous and gentle and caring and loving towards people who aren't believers? Probably the answer that I would give is, well, they're made in the image of God. They have value and dignity and worth because they are, uh, they are image bearers. And that's a good answer, I think. And that is certainly true, but that's not where Paul goes. He doesn't say, look, we just kind of owe this to them as image bearers. But he points us back to what we once were, that we were just like they were at one time. Whether you individually or if by God's grace, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and don't remember a time, this is still you by nature. And this is still us uh, as members of a fallen humanity. That this is what we would be and this is what many of us in fact were uh, apart from the grace of God. That we were foolish and that's still many of us. In our, uh, in our progressive sanctification, we haven't attained uh, complete, the complete absence of these things that we still are sometimes characterized by foolishness and disobedience and being led astray by all sorts of things and slaves to various passions and pleasures. That's a bleak picture of man apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that they're slaves to the various uh, foolishness and sins that we so hate 
in them and we love to criticize in them. That it's as if they can't help themselves but be foolish and sin against the Lord because that is what we are by nature. And so what good does it do for us to kick them while they're down, to, to, to criticize and condemn them, to puff ourselves up? No, we ought to remember that we once were just like the world. That the only reason we are not, even to some degree, is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the context that we ought to remember. That when we see the aberrations and the abominations of behavior that many in our culture have subscribed to and have succumbed to and have given themselves to, that our first reaction perhaps sometimes should be a righteous anger, but more often should be a disposition of compassion, of pity, of sorrow. It's so sad that they would be deceived into thinking that that's okay, that that's good, that that's beautiful, that that's somehow better than the way that the Lord has designed the world to be. And our hearts ought to go out to them, just like Christ on the church, on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or Stephen, when he was being martyred, when he was being killed for his faith, not just mocked or something like that, had compassion and mercy on those who were throwing the stones at him, that we ought to have compassion and mercy and grace on those who even hate us, because that is what they are by nature, and that's what we once were ourselves. We have no room for boasting or thinking that we are above even the worst vices of our culture. So it's the context of love. And then finally, the condition of love. How is it that we can love the world in this way? Well, in verse 4, we see that the only reason that we are not all these really wretched conditions of verse 3 is the grace of God. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There was nothing in you that merited the grace of God. You weren't smart enough to figure it out. You weren't wise enough to come to your senses and to realize that you needed to submit your life to the Lord Jesus. You weren't ethical enough to be this great uh, kid, you know, who uh, just grew up God's gift to humanity and you were, uh, all your siblings and all the people around you were so rebellious and awful, but you had it all together and you grew up prim and proper and perfect. That's not the case for any of us. And if we did, did tend to um, uh, look pretty put together ethically on the outside, we're probably characterized by a, a, a corrupting pride and arrogance on the inside. In fact, even if we have those thoughts that we are above somehow by our own merits, those people who are characterized by these sins, then, then that reveals the sin in our own hearts, the pride and the arrogance and the lack of gratitude for what the Lord has really done for us. But we see the, the blessed mercy and kindness and goodness of our Savior here, that despite the fact that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, not seeking after God, hating God and hating his people and hating others, that it was at that time that Christ died for the ungodly, that Christ died for you and for me, that the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. And then he saved us. He pulled us out. We did not save ourselves. And he did so 
by his own mercy and by his own grace. And that's how we can uh, extend that grace and mercy to those around us. We have been shown so much mercy and forgiveness and grace so that we can forgive 70 times, 70 times. That we can forgive and be gracious and patient with others because of the patience that we have had. You know, if, if we were at that restaurant at that conference, and we had been thinking about the patience and the mercy that God had shown us. You know, we didn't just miss a drink order or forget an appetizer. We, made it, we flipped the tables and smashed on the dishes and kicked the, the diners in the face. And yet, even still, the Lord was far more patient with us than we are with others. And when we dwell on and we saturate our hearts in the mercy of God, then that naturally extends itself out towards those around us, even those people that are so difficult to be patient and merciful toward. And not only did he save us from our own sins, but he even made us a new creation. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that he has given us the very resources that we need to love like he has loved, that we have the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead in our hearts, that you have the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead in your heart so that you can love and be patient with those around you. And he poured out the Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a glorious God that we serve and what a glorious God that we can mirror in the way that we love the world that he gave himself for. And then finally, we look towards the great hope that we have. We remember, as we've said many times, that this is not our home, that we are pilgrims here, and that the hopes that we have are not that our desires will be fulfilled on this earth. We shouldn't be looking for everyone else to meet the desires that we have in the here and now, because we know that that's not what will ultimately satisfy us, and that those things will rust and, and fade away but that our everlasting hope is in Christ's return, that we will be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's a little bit of annoyance in this life? What's a little bit of someone criticizing us or, or, or saying mean things about us or, or doing those things which irritate us or get on our nerves or even cause us to be fearful or disgusted or whatever it might be? What is a, a brief vapor of those things in the light of eternity? Surely you and I can be far more patient and gracious and loving when we consider the everlasting reward that we will receive, again, not because of our works, but purely by the grace of Christ. And so we see this command of loving the world around us. We see that we are to be characterized by humble obedience. Submit yourselves to those rulers that God has placed in your life. That we should be eager to do good to those around us that we should be gentle and kind and merciful to whatever degree we are able. And even when we do need to rebuke and criticize, we ought to do so with love and gentleness. And we do this because we were once just like the world, but for the grace of God go I. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we are prone to wander. We fall short in so many ways of what you have called us to. Lord, who is like the Lord Jesus? None of us. We are nowhere near as gracious and merciful to sinners around us. We condemn, we criticize, we quarrel, we look for ways to puff ourselves up and to build ourselves up in our own kingdoms 
and to tear others down. And we do ask for your mercy to us, as you have shown us so abundantly already, that you would be gracious to us to make us gracious like you. That you would help us to love our neighbors, those people that are hard to get along with, that we don't seem to connect with, that do things that we disapprove of. We ask that you would help us to reach out to them in love because of the love you have shown us that we would be patient to share the love of Christ with them and that you would cause us to not look to our own interests but to the interests of others in order to reflect the love of our Savior Jesus. For it's in his name and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen.